Thank you so much for being here this morning. I want to make an announcement before we dig into the sermon. Uh, I hope that you'll return tonight. We're going to do our first ever State of the Church address. All nine of our elders will be up here to talk about the exciting things that are coming uh, the way of Oldham Lane in the year and also talking about some of the things that, uh, you know, maybe are informational to you. Uh, like church security, things of that nature. So I hope that you'll be here tonight. It promises to be a, a good dialogue, good conversation. In 2017, La La Land won the Oscar for Best Picture, except that it didn't. In front of 33 million viewers, there was a major gaffe. You see, Warren Beatty was one of the presenters. He was handed the envelope. He opened it up, and sure enough, it read, Winner of Best Picture, La La Land. And the cast and crew came up to accept their Oscar. And in the middle of their acceptance speeches, word was given that they weren't really the winner. You see, an agent from PricewaterhouseCoopers, I guess is who contracted with, you know, the Oscars, had made a mistake. The actual winner was Moonlight. And so what resulted was a very uncomfortable situation, which led to... House Coopers being unwelcomed and unaccepted and not being able to come back ever and work with them in the Oscars. I, I, I didn't watch the Oscars live, but I went back and I watched it on social media, and it's pretty uncomfortable. You think, how in the world could something like that happen? I mean, that can't happen, right? I mean, that's just something you've got to get correct. You can't make that mistake. And then I think about it, and I think, well, you know, not much different than some things that I've done. I mean, I've never made a mistake in front of 33 million people, but I've certainly made my share of monumental mistakes, and I'm sure you have as well, right? I mean, all of us at some point have had that moment where we had to say, whoops, we've all had those faux pas, those monumental gaffes, those mistakes. I can remember doing a funeral for a sweet little old lady. She didn't have any family except her brother, and so we communicated back and forth on the phone we decided we were going to play some songs and say a few kind words. The funeral was at a funeral home that was rather small. It was a very intimate setting. I had recorded the songs that he wanted played for her funeral on a CD. I arrived at the funeral home and I told them this is the CD of the songs that we want to play. And the lady said, well, we don't have a sound system. And I said, okay, so what now, right? So she said, we do have a little Bluetooth speaker that you can use. Well, it's a rather small chapel. There weren't going to be many people there. So I thought, okay. So I get the Bluetooth speaker, and it's about this big. And I thought, I can plug my phone into that, and, you know, we can play the songs off of YouTube. So I plug my phone in. I play the first song. It goes well. I hit pause. I go up, and I deliver the obituary. I come back to my seat. I hit play, and we play the next song. Everything goes well. I hit pause. I stand up and get behind the podium to deliver the eulogy, and my phone rings through the Bluetooth speaker. So I run down, I get off the stage, I run down to my seat and I'm trying to, you know, hit pause or hit buttons or whatever I can do to stop it. It seemed like it went on for several minutes until finally, finally I stopped it. That was a pretty big gaffe on my part. Many of you have had similar situations where you've done something you're not so proud of. And this has been happening since the beginning of time. I mean, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? You have Adam and Eve who were given a lot of freedom and only one commandment, right? And as we know, they didn't obey. Eve fell to temptation. Adam followed. And what we had was paradise lost. We often refer to this event as the fall of man. And rightfully so, because Adam and Eve fell from the good graces of God. They fell from the garden, and they fell from that relationship with, with the Lord. 
We've all made mistakes. We've all done things that we're not proud of. Maybe we've run a red light. Maybe we've broken the speed limit. Maybe we've gone through a stop sign. Maybe we've texted while we're driving. Maybe we let a cuss word slip out. And even if we haven't done those things, we've all done something that violated God's commands. We've all transgressed in front of God. And it's a fight, it's a battle that we engage in every single day, right? It's nonstop. But there's something else that's nonstop as well. And that's the grace of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Here you have two men, two outcomes, and one glorious truth. You know, from a gospel perspective, there's only two people you need to know about. You don't have to know the dimensions of the tabernacle. You don't have to be able to name the 12 apostles or the 12 tribes of Judah. All you really need to know from a gospel perspective is two people. Not that those other things are unimportant, mind you, but all you really need to know is two people, Adam and Jesus. Two people that the whole gospel centers on, right? Two people that get to the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Because what Paul is saying is, Adam did something of eternal significance in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus did something of eternal significance on the cross. The course of the world was changed in the Garden. The course of the world was changed at Calvary. Two men, two actions, two moments that reverberate throughout history, two outcomes that flow across history and touch all of us directly. Because these two men represent every single person. Every human being is represented by these two men and only these two men. Because either you are in Adam or you are in Christ and there's no in between. All of us fall into one of those two categories. You are either in Adam or you're in Jesus There is a comparing and a contrasting here that is beyond profound that Paul points out here. But what he is saying in summation is what Jesus accomplished on the cross is greater than what Adam did in the garden. That's the entirety of Paul's message here in condensed, condensed form. 
What Jesus accomplished on the cross is greater than what Adam did in the garden. What Adam did brought devastating consequences, no doubt. But what Christ did overpowered it all. By the way, have you ever wondered why just Adam here? Why is Adam the only focus? I mean, why does Eve get a hall pass? She's the one that started this whole thing, right? So why are they just focused on Adam in this passage? Why is Paul just bringing him to light? Certainly, Eve was responsible. Well, you got to understand, this passage has been interpreted in many different ways. For instance, there are some that believe this passage in Romans 5 points to original sin. The fact that we all are guilty of the sin of Adam. However, Paul's entire argument is not original sin. His entire argument is the unity that all sinners have in Adam and the unity that all redeemed sinners have in Jesus Christ. We are all guilty sinners in Adam, but we're not all guilty of Adam's sin, if that makes sense. Ephesians 2, 3, Paul wrote, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's because of Adam's sin that mankind is described as children of wrath. You see, the fall brought about a fundamental change in our nature. But that's not the same thing as inherited sin. Because you can read through the pages of Scripture and nowhere do you find sin presented as something that's genetic. It's not something that's passed down. In fact, Scripture describes sin over and over again as a choice. As a decision as a product of the will of man. It's something produced by our own volition. It's not something that you inherit. So we're not guilty of the sin of Adam, but we all find unity in Adam as sinners because the fall brought the devastating consequences of sin. It brought about a nature that was changed. At the end of the day, it was Adam who bore the brunt of this responsibility. Why Adam and not Eve? Well, I think it's because he was created first. He was created to take care of Eve. If you read through that account of the fall of the fall of man, you'll find that Adam was there. He was there when Eve took of the fruit. Why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he step up to the plate? We know that Scripture ordains leadership in the home and in the church with man. That doesn't mean that Eve is not responsible. It doesn't mean that she's going to get off scot-free. It just means that the buck stopped with Adam. I think that's why he's the one that's mentioned here and not Eve. Adam bore the brunt of the responsibility just as Jesus bears the brunt of our sin on the cross. I think it's important before we go any further to maybe mention a few things about grace just in passing that I think are important to kind of get out of the way because the religious world around us has distorted and perverted grace to a point that You know, it seems like we're always reacting rather than just accepting a biblical version of grace. First thing is that we are all saved by grace. There's no disclaimer there. It seems like whenever we say that, we have to follow it up by, yes, you got to obey though. Sure. But I mean, scripture is clear. You are saved by grace, right? Grace saves us. Salvation is either earned or merited. No, actually, it's either earned or merited or it's given. But grace is a free gift, but a gift is not a gift until it is received, right? Which brings us to the second thing. Grace obligates. It's not a gift if you don't receive it. 
But your obedience doesn't earn anything. It doesn't merit anything. Gift, this is still a free gift. Grace is still a free gift, but it's only a gift if you receive it. You see, grace is God's part in the salvation of man, and faith is our part. Also, grace is ongoing. Grace isn't a one-shot deal. It's not like you get grace at baptism and you never need it again. It's continuous. It's ongoing. It's something that you will need the rest of your lives. Grace also cannot be taken too far. You know, the world around us may distort grace. The religious world may pervert it, but that shouldn't change our perception of it. You can't take grace too far. Grace cannot be taken too far. Grace abounds, and God wants us to understand how immeasurable His grace is. And finally, grace is a who, not a what. Grace isn't doctrine. Grace isn't rules. Grace isn't morality. Grace is a person. It's a who. Grace equals Jesus Christ. Grace personified is Christ. This is all about fellowship. This is all about being in relationship with God, and you don't get there without grace. I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that there is a convicted murderer on death row. And just before his execution, he decides he wants to do something good. He wants to donate a kidney. And so they find a recipient. They bring that recipient in to meet the murderer who's going to be convicted and going to be, I mean, already convicted, is going to be put to death. The local news does a big story on the whole thing, and the man is executed. He gives up his kidney. The person receives it. They're doing really well. Everything's going good. And the man is driving down the road who received the kidney, and the cops pull him over. And the police officer recognizes him as, as the one who was in the news about receiving the kidney, and he arrests him because he has the kidney of a murderer in his body. And in his mind, you're guilty. So he takes him to jail, and they you know, set up a trial and all that. Well, guess what? It gets thrown out because it's ridiculous, right? You're not guilty. Just because you have the kidney of a murderer in your body does not make you a murderer, right? And it's similar to us as those who were in Adam that are now in Christ. A spiritual transplant has occurred. So when you leave being in Adam to being in Christ, you receive all the benefit of that. There's not a piece of you that's left behind that's guilty. You're all in and you're all righteous. You enjoy all the righteousness that comes from being in Christ. When you repent, when you confess, when you're baptized, you are transplanted from Adam to Christ. Though you were once guilty, just as guilty as Adam, you are now as righteous as Jesus because a spiritual transplant has occurred. Whatever is true of Jesus is now true of you as well. It's all-consuming. You see, Jesus, in Jesus, we have gained so much more than what was lost in Adam. And Paul makes this very clear in Romans 5. I love how he presents us. Look at with, with me again, verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love how he closes things out here. I love this summation. You cannot outsin the grace of God. That, in essence, is what Paul is saying. The law was given so that mankind would realize the depth and the breadth of their sin. The law exposed the severity of sin and the desperate need for a Savior. And the only way that one could be saved before Jesus was by keeping the law perfectly. And you couldn't do that, right? 
which is why they needed a day of atonement every year. How many commandments are there? And don't say 10. There are 613 mitzvahs in the Talmud. Try keeping 613 commandments perfectly. The people couldn't even keep 10 perfectly, much less 613. I actually had the opportunity to talk to a Jewish gabbai one time, and I asked him about this, and he said, well, what we do is we take a portion of the 613, and, and we take a grouping, and we, we try to master those, and then when we do that, we move on to the next grouping. It's impossible, though, right? Which is why we needed Jesus, which is why he had to come. The law was never intended to be kept perfectly or permanently. The law was intended to be a tutor or a schoolmaster to point forward to our need for a Savior. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, where Sam was looking at this morning in his class, verses 22 through 29, Paul tells us of how the law of Moses was a tutor. And the Greek term here is the word patagogos. And a patagogos was a hired slave, if you will. A wealthy person would hire this patagogos to take care of his son, to teach him the ropes, to show him the way, to guide him, to, to keep him safe. This patagogos would take care of the boy and, and lead him along the path of what is right and try to help him along the way. But there was a time when the patagogos would be obsolete. There came a point in the son's life where he reached maturity and the patagogos was no longer needed. You see, this tutor was never intended to be permanent. The father hired this man only for a temporary time and then he could go on his way and the son was free to live on his own. That's the picture that is presented here. You know where all this is leading. It's leading to redemption and restoration. It all points to our need for the only one who can meet our need. It all points to grace because the Bible is a story of paradise lost and paradise regained. What all started in the garden with Adam will be renewed and restored and redeemed on Calvary with Jesus Christ. Sin began to accumulate. It became more and more of a problem. However, where sin increased, grace super increased. Sin couldn't even keep up. God was always three steps ahead of it. Just look at what Paul wrote before what we read in verses 12 through 21. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was a man sitting by the river when he noticed a scorpion floating along, struggling to survive. And so the man thought he would try to save it. He reached in to pick it up, and guess what? It stung him. He still felt sorry for the scorpion, so he reached in again, tried to save it, and guess what? It stung him. It hurt. His hand was swollen. A gentleman sitting nearby says, hey, you fool, what are you doing? You're trying to save this ugly creature that keeps stinging you. What's wrong with you? And the man said, just because it's in the scorpion's nature to sting doesn't change my nature to save. And that is God. Just because it's in our nature to sin, to transgress, doesn't change the nature of God who wants to rescue us. God was out in front of sin. Grace was always in the cards. There was always a plan, but first mankind had to understand why they even needed grace in the first place. You cannot understand grace until you've understood wrath. You will never fully grasp 
your need for grace until you fully understand and appreciate wrath. Until you understand what you've been rescued from, you can never appreciate the rescuing. Look, the hearse is coming for you. You know that, right? The hearse is coming for you. I can't change that. You can't change that. It's just an absolute truth. None of you are getting out of here alive. None of you are leaving this earth in any way, shape, or form other than at least appearing dead as a doornail. Every time you see a body loaded into that hearse, it's easy to think, well, death gained another victory. Every time you drive by the cemetery, it's easy to say, well, chalk another one up to death. It's easy when you see the hearse driving down the road with its headlights on and and people following in procession and you pull over to the side of the road as a sign of respect. It's easy to say, well, death claimed another one. But folks, the hearse and the cemetery only tell part of the story. There is a way to reverse what Adam did. There is a way to defeat death. Romans 5, 16 and 17 says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We live in a dying world. Death is all around us and death is the destiny of every human being. No one is getting out of here alive, but death does not reign. Do you know who reigns? Jesus reigns. Christ reigns supreme, and because we are in Christ, we reign supreme. If you are lost in sin, if you are still in Adam, then unfortunately you don't have that benefit. But every single person living on the planet right now, whether you're in Adam or in Jesus, all of you have grace. You realize that? Every single person alive today, whether they're lost or whether they've been rescued, all of them benefit from the grace of God. When you got up this morning, you know what that was? When you were able to get up, put on your clothes, and come to church, you know what that was? When you get to kiss your spouse goodbye and go off to work tomorrow, and then come home and kiss your kids and help them with their homework and and, and eat supper together and go to bed and get up and do it all over again the next day, you know what that is? That's grace. That's what that is. A holy God has allowed you to live another day and have the opportunity to get it right. That's grace. And everyone enjoys that. The problem is some people don't see it. If you're in Adam, what are you waiting on? You have been given grace profound. Every day is a testament to the grace of God that you are allowed to live and have the opportunity to come and have a relationship with Him. And if you continue to dismiss that opportunity then I'm sorry. Hope is not on the horizon. Why would you ever dismiss that hope? Why would you ever choose not to be in relationship with a gracious God? This is an opportunity to receive God's grace. This may be your golden moment. You're at the threshold of salvation. You're at the precipice of salvation. What are you going to do with it? 
story is told of a man named Jim who ran an orphanage. Jim was a beloved figure in this orphanage. All the kids loved Jim, all of them. Every time he entered in, they would run up to him and hug him, and he would kiss on them, and he loved and adored these kids, and they loved and adored him. And the thing that made Jim special is that he made his kids feel special because many of these kids did not feel special. Many of these kids had some sort of deformity or some sort of handicap that made them feel less than confident. Many of them were very self-loathing. And Jim would take whatever it was that was their disability and he would exploit it and make it something that they would be proud of, something that they would take pride in. For instance, kid had crooked teeth, he'd say, you have the most beautiful smile in the world. Show us all your smile. If a kid wore braces on his legs because he couldn't walk properly, Jim would talk about how distinctive his walk was, how it was a great strut that everyone should have. The kids began to take pride in themselves because Jim pointed out that their disability wasn't really a disability, but it made them unique and profound. And one day, the orphanage receives a young man that was unmanageable. Nobody else could handle him. He was simply obstinate, stubborn, didn't respect authority. He comes into the orphanage. Jim wasn't there at the time. The other staffers could not work with him, so he goes off and he sits in a corner by himself. And Jim arrives, and all the kids flock to Jim as they always did. And they love on him, and he loves on them. And then he looks over, and he finds the boy sitting in the corner. And he says, well, well, who is this? And some of the kids said, you know, that's the new guy. The new kid had a birthmark that covered half his face. It was rather grotesque. Made him feel like he was alienated, like he was less than human because kids can be cruel. And all the kids had always made fun of this little boy. And so Jim notices him and he walks right over to him and he picks him up in his arms And he gives them a big kiss right in the middle of that birthmark. And the young boy was his from that point on. That boy became a model child because Jim took an interest in him. And instead of seeing that birthmark as something that was grotesque and made him less than human, Jim exploited it as something distinct and unique that made him different than all the other kids in a good way. And the boy bought in. Is that not what God has done for us? Has God not kissed the ugly parts of us? Is that not what the grace of God is? That he looks at us in in our grotesqueness. He looks at us in all those disgusting pieces that we despise in ourselves and he makes us beautiful. Is that not what God's done? I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the fact that God wants ugly old me in heaven. And he wants you there as well. And God's grace is him kissing those ugly parts and making you something beautiful, something that he can use, and most importantly, something that he wants. This is your golden opportunity. If you are in Adam, Get in Christ and let us help you. Come as we stand and as we sing.